Well, good morning, saints, and good morning, sinners. I'm glad that you're watching, that you've tuned in, that you're here with us today. I trust that you're doing well uh, this day. Uh, Do us a favor. uh, Do me a favor. I'd love to hear your feedback as you uh, sit back and watch our gatherings. Um, What's it like for you? What do you like in terms of the... um, um, The feed. Uh, Do you like the intimate setting like you saw today? Do you like the full band? We have some creativity that we'd like to do. If you have some other ideas, we'd love to hear it. So, you know, uh, again, give us your feedback. Uh, Send it to us personally, and uh, uh, we'd love to simply hear from you. Before I jump into our life lesson, uh, I'd like to get you to get your kids and gather them around the TV because I have the story of Easter. I have a book that I want to read to the kids today. It is Palm Sunday, and I want to tell about the whole Easter story. So call your kids, gather your kids around the TV. I'll give you just a couple minutes before we get started. And uh, I have my own copy, but just for you, we have it prepared on the screen as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, maybe parents, maybe you'll learn something. I'm not, I'm not too sure about that, but let's do this. It's called The Story of Easter, and um, let's go straight to it now. I'm just going to wait for it to come up on the screen. Here we go. The story of Easter. There we are. Next page, please. This is the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. One day, Jesus and his disciples came to the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus was riding on a donkey. As he entered the city, people laid down palm branches and said, Hosanna to the son of David. But the chief priest did not like that Jesus was being praised by the people, and he wanted to get rid of him. It was Passover, and and Jesus was with his disciples to eat a meal. He looked at his disciples and said, One of you will betray me tonight. But they all said they would not. And as they passed around the bread to eat, Jesus blessed it and he said, Take this bread and eat it. This is my body. Then they passed the cup around of wine and Jesus again blessed it. He said, Take this cup and drink. This is my blood which is shed for all people. Later that night, Jesus walked into the garden. A few of his disciples followed him, but they fell asleep. But Jesus prayed to God knowing that he'd soon be killed. And then early that morning, Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, approached Jesus in the garden with some of his soldiers. Judas kissed him on the cheek, and then Jesus was arrested. Judas had just betrayed Jesus. Jesus was brought to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Pilate asked Jesus if he had said he was the Son of God, and Jesus said he did. The chief priest did not like this answer and asked Pilate to put Jesus to death. And Jesus was given a crown of thorns and a very heavy wooden cross. He was made to carry it through the streets. The people made fun of Jesus as he carried the cross out of the city into a hill. There Jesus was nailed to the cross. And he called out to God, into your hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus died. The sky turned dark and the earth shook. 
Jesus' disciples and friends took his body down. They wrapped it in a cloth and then they carried it to a tomb. They rolled a really big stone in front of the opening and they went home. They were sad because of the death of Jesus. Two days later, Mary Magdalene, Jesus' friend, and another Mary came to the tomb. But when they got there, the stone was rolled away. The stone was rolled away and the the women began to cry and the angel said, don't be afraid, Jesus is risen just as he promised. And So today, we remember and we celebrate Jesus' death and a resurrection on Easter Sunday, giving thanks to God for his promise of eternal life. And that's what we're doing this week. Today is Palm Sunday, kids. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday, where Jesus rose from the dead. And mom and dad, I trust that you'll be celebrating and telling the story over and over and over again with your kids. And uh, uh, let them know just what this is all about and the hope that we have in our risen Savior. So, Palm Sunday. Been thinking all week on, on what to share, how to share, and I... You know, I get caught up. I'll tell you what I got caught up in in just a few moments. But I came across a video that is actually just too good to keep to myself. So just watch this. Hey, Tommy and Eddie here to talk to you about something really great, Palm Sunday. Yeah, that's the Sunday that we paint our palms purple to commemorate King Saul talking to that palm reader lady, and then we wave him in the air. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's yes, not. Yes, it no. is. What Bible do you read? Palm Sunday commemorates the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now picture this. Jesus rode in on a donkey while the crowds put their cloaks and palm branches all over the ground, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. That's what I said. What I meant. Okay, now picture this. Jesus' popularity was going viral. I mean, he just raised Lazarus from the dead in the same community just a few days earlier. Wait, post-dead Lazarus was maybe at the very first Palm Sunday? Yeah, probably. That's so cool. I bet if he was there, he was probably like, And you're a thriller, thriller, Jesus. You raised me from the dead when you said, Get up, get up, get up, ooh! Now, to complete all of this, Jesus needed a donkey. Now, you'd think that a king or a prince would ride in on a horse, but not Jesus. He knew the message that he wanted to send. You see, a donkey represents peace. Anybody riding a donkey represented peaceful intentions. Yeah, it says right here in Matthew 21, it says that Jesus sent two of his disciples to get him a donkey. Yeah. Hey, I wonder which two he sent. Mm, maybe Thomas. I doubt it. I bet he sent Andrew. Andrew would totally do that. And probably Tony. I bet he said Andrew and Tony. Tony's not a disciple. Oh, sorry. Tony is. Still not a disciple. What translation of the Bible do you read? Jesus needed a donkey, so he asked two disciples to go get him a donkey. He told them they would find one in town, tied there next to a colt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he says, untie them and bring them to me. And if somebody asks you about it, you tell them the Lord needs them? Jeez. Yeah. What? Well, Jesus told his disciples to go steal a donkey for him. What Bible do you read? It doesn't say that at all. I can't figure this out. I mean, Jesus, he changed water into wine. Cool. He fed the 4,000. He fed the 5,000. What? He fed the 5,000. It doesn't matter. It does matter. Not the fourth. It's the 5,000. We're splitting hairs. I'm sorry. 
Jesus fed a large group of people, and that's cool. He, he healed people with leprosy. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and then boom, he's like, hey guys, go steal me a donkey. I'm just saying, I don't think that's very WWJD. The significance of Jesus riding on a donkey, which he did not steal, was to fulfill the prophecy that is found in Zechariah 9.9. Yeah, but... The... And the king, riding in on a lowly donkey with his way paved with palm branches, the palm branches symbolize triumph or victory. The what? The palm branches. The branch... Palm thought... branches, Palm Sunday. I thought it was the palm... They should call it Branch Sunday, because that's confusing. We all have palms with us all the time. I just, I feel bad. I'm sorry, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a time for us to prepare our hearts for the agony of his passion and the joy of his resurrection. So this week, let's cover the road to the cross with our hearts, our souls, and our minds as we reflect on the final week of Jesus' life. And let's celebrate in anticipation the return of the King of Kings. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, I'm writing this message this week, and uh, you know, I thought it would be inter- you know, cool to somehow introduce you to time travel and, and uh, invite all of us to go back to the time of Jesus. And uh, um, I wanted people to imagine the political upheaval and, and the, understand the expectations of the common person during this time, this Palm Sunday. And you know, people are looking for a Savior to rescue them from Rome, and I thought, you know, you know there's got to be some interesting movies out there that would talk about Herod and uh, the, a corrupt religious system that I could share with you. But unfortunately, I got caught up in all the different movies that we can watch on TV and on Netflix and that we're all really with time travel. So maybe if you're bored, if you want to, you know, Back to the Future, Groundhog Day, Interstellar, the Terminator series, Hot Tub Time Machine, 12 Monkeys, a little weird that one, but Looper, um, the Time Traveler's Wife, Doctor Strange, Planet of the Apes, Arrival, uh, X-Men, A Future Past for all you uh, superhero guys, The Time Machine, Time Bandits, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, or Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, it's up to you on that one, Source Code, just to name a few movies that talk about time travel. But then, of course, I had to come to my senses and I realized that uh, I better get back and stay to Scripture, and so... We're about to enter the turmoil, the roller coaster ride of Holy Week. You know, today, Sunday, Palm Sunday, now the roller coaster starts for Jesus. We move from the high of this triumphant entry to the low of Jesus' arrest, uh, his um, purging, his crucifixion and death. But then it culminates again in the high of Easter Sunday next week, Resurrection Sunday. You know, talk about ups and downs, but it starts today with Palm Sunday, and, and Jesus makes his entry into the city. In Matthew chapter 21, we read at the end of the passage, uh, verses 1 to 11, he says, When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? Well, today, Jesus is entering the most troubled place in the world, when you think about it. This is why I wanted to go back in time. It's a place of struggle. It's a place of conflict. It's a place of uh, confrontation. It has a history of killing the prophets. It has a history of fighting wars. It has a history of, of living in violence. It's a place in turmoil. But the most troubled place in the world is not, however, a geographical location. The most troubled place in the world is the human heart. 
It was then and it is even today. Looking at the history of the world and look at present-day Jerusalem, the wars, the fighting, the protests that have gone on throughout the Middle East, we look at our global political and economic systems, we see our systems today in turmoil, uh, and that fills the heart of humanity, does it not? We see it in world events, but we also experience it in our own lives. It's the fear, it's the uncertainty of our future, and because of, uh, uh, of this virus and, and the subsequent quarantine, we are all rattled by it. The loss of financial security. Add to that the possibility of a myriad of problems, pre-existing issues that now actually are magnified because we are locked in together. A broken marriage. Estrangement between parent and child. Sickness, you name it. Like it interrupts life's plans altogether. And the fact is, each of us could name and describe our, our own personal turmoil right now. Think about a time of turmoil in your life. Uh, and you can probably recall how maybe the foundations of your world were shaken. Man, so for some of you, that's like right now. You know, that turmoil challenges our beliefs and faith. It confronts the way that we've always done things. It, it really makes us question where we're going. So even in the midst of turmoil, life, people, maybe even God doesn't really line up with how our expectations are and what we've actually come to believe, and now we're sort of left on the side of the road. And when that happens, we, we mostly want things to get back into alignment, don't we? Just let's get back. You know, uh, we often don't think about realigning ourselves. Instead, we want to go back to the way it was before, Right? Don't we all just sort of wish about that? But, you know, some of us, we pray for God to fix the problem and, and to end the turmoil. But for others, they, we look for an escape from our turmoil. And today, really, there's no escape, is there? So let's go back to our story. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. It's the heart of a people, the, the identity of a nation. It's the foundation of a religion. That's where he's coming in. And if we read into this story, may I suggest that we are the city. We are shaken. We are agitated. We are confronted every time Jesus comes to us. And if we're not, maybe we should be. Jesus turns our worlds upside down when you think about it. That's what he does. That may not be what we want, but that's who he is. Let me explain. You know, if, if we were given a choice, I would suspect that most of us would prefer a domesticated Jesus. Jesus light, right? One who just sort of brings peace and security. One who makes life easy and happy. But that's not what Jesus is all about when we begin to read the scriptures. Actually, he has been bringing turmoil from the day he was born. If we go back into history, if we were to time travel back to the birth of Jesus, when King Herod heard that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, and, you know, king of the Jews, Herod and all Jerusalem with him were troubled. They were shaken. They were in turmoil, according to Matthew. Jesus called James and John to leave their nets, to leave their boat, to leave their father in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, 
That was the very foundation on which their life and their identity was built. He ate with the wrong kind of people, the tax collectors and the sinners in Matthew 9. He sent out the 12 apostles telling them, look, don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. It's interesting that Jesus separates us from the things and the people that we most often think hold our life together. He broke the rules. He violated expectations by healing a man's hand on the Sabbath. The authorities thought you know, it should be, remain withered in Matthew chapter 12. But Jesus also goes on and he tells his disciples, he says, if anybody wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So when we look at Jesus, we see that his life, his teaching, his behavior actually causes this turmoil, this upheaval. And Palm Sunday is is no exception. And so back to our story, we see the whole city is in turmoil. And when you and I, when we go through turmoil, it actually reveals a lot about us. It actually says something about our life. It says something about our faith. Sort of our way of being, not being in alignment maybe with God's life and way of, of being. And so much so that, that immediately after Jesus enters Jerusalem, he makes his way to the, to the temple. And in this whole process, people are asking one, one question. They're saying, who is this? You know, he's not the sweet baby Jesus of Talladega Nights that we looked at last week. He's not our buddy. He's not our pal. I go so far as to say he's not our co-pilot. He, he's actually the man of turmoil. However, his turmoil is life-giving and God-revealing. The turmoil he brings into our life helps us into an alignment with God's life. His entry into Jerusalem inaugurates Uh, A holy week of turmoil, realigning our relationships and teaching us the the intimacy when we read the stories of washing feet, calling us to die before death comes, breaking open our lives in ways that we never expected or even thought possible. The turmoil that Jesus brings is the chaos out of which new life will be born on Easter Sunday. Now in Matthew and Luke, after Jesus enters Jerusalem, they, they record Jesus going straight to the temple and he drives out all those who are buying and selling away to God, basically. He opens up a can of wood and overturns the tables and chairs of those who acted as the gatekeepers to God. But this morning, I actually want to read from Mark's account because there's something very profound in Mark's view of the story. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you doing, say this, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the streets and tied Tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people were standing there. They asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them, and the people let them go. 
When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I want you to think about this question. Why did Jesus leave the temple and go to Bethany? It sounds like one of those questions, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? But it's, it's not a joke. I think, I think the answer to the question and the implication of that answer actually holds the key to our Holy Week this year. And here is Jesus. He's in a parade, a march, a movement. He's riding a borrowed donkey, or in this case, Marx's colt. We call it the triumphal entry. People are in front. They're behind Jesus. They're shouting their hosannas. They're throwing down their palm branches, their cloaks for him to ride on. They're, They're rolling out the red carpet. And there's this excitement. There's this anticipation. And this thing, you know, this Jesus thing is really going somewhere. Something really big is about to happen. He's riding into Jerusalem. He enters the temple. He looks around at everything. And he leaves. He does nothing. Mark, he says nothing. He he just leaves. He gets the 12 and he goes back to Bethany. And it's almost a strange, it's an anticlimactic ending to this triumphal entry. And it almost sounds like maybe Jesus is retreating. He's trying to get out of town, you know. What's all that about is, did he have to be somewhere else? Was it past his bedtime? You know, crazy questions start coming into it. Was he scared? And if you think about it, really, Holy Week is a very scary week in some respects. And I wonder if he was wavering a bit. Maybe he was not as sure as when he started his ride. That's a possibility. Maybe he was having some doubts. Maybe he was having some questions and he just, he wanted to get away. Perhaps maybe he just needed to regroup. We're not quite sure. Maybe make another start. You know, I think we've all done that when you think about it. Haven't you had to face some really difficult conversations or situations and if you're like me those are usually either painful or scary right we make a start but sometimes we just don't finish we back up and and try again you know maybe that's what his leaving the temple could be about because it's really a strange and anticlimactic ending to this triumphal entry that makes me think that there's something very significant that Mark's trying to share with us. Because it's so unique. Because Mark is the only one of the four Gospels who actually describes this. The whole city's in turmoil when Jesus enters. In Matthew chapter 21, he he goes to the temple, he drives out those who are buying and selling, he overturns the tables and chairs. In Luke chapter 19, he weeps over Jerusalem, then he enters the temple, again, where he drives out those who are buying and selling. John's account in John chapter 12, Jesus doesn't even go to the temple. John actually records that Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 2. This is what we read. It says, In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them from the temple courts. 
Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And then Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days, but the temple he spoke of was his body. Again, this is John's account, very early. And the religious people of that day didn't understand that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body because they were about business as usual. It was business as usual that day, the day that Jesus shows up in the temple. Animals are being bought and sold. Cash is being exchanged. The usual uh, people all had their usual places, usual roles, usual stalls. And, and this is one of those stories that we need to sort of set aside a couple of things. Things that, that don't belong, things that distract before we can really understand what's happening. We need to set aside what we have often been told you know, uh, or thought this story's about so we can hear it again for the first time. The story's not about Jesus getting angry. Jesus got angry. Yeah, sure. I get angry. Okay, you get angry. It's okay to get angry. That's not the point. There's more to the story than that. And I don't think it's about animals. I don't think it's about the money changers being in the temple. Jesus had to know that they were there. You know, again, he... He's grown up and drew around Jerusalem. He, he grew up as a faithful Jew. He went to the temple all the time. He didn't just show up one day, that one day, and say, wow, there's animals and money changers here. Uh, I didn't know this. This is wrong, and then loses it. They had, had always been there. That's how that system worked. It was business as usual for them to be there. I think Jesus went to the temple that one day in John for one purpose. To do what it does. He went to cause some turmoil. Throw out, overturn business as usual. And there are times we need the tables of our lives overturned and the animals, so to speak, thrown out. Because I think for many of us, it's so easy to fall into the trap as business as usual. Am I right? Because now, it's no longer business as usual. You know, have you ever pushed that autopilot button where life was just mechanical? You know, before this whole COVID crisis, I think many of us could agree to that. Where we just would go through life, we'd just go through the motions. That we would show up, but you know, we're not really there, whether it was work or church or school or wherever. It was just business as usual. Have you ever smiled that I'm good and everything is fine? Smile, right? But behind that smile, there's emptiness or hollow. Or maybe behind that smile was heartbreak and sorrow. Or maybe you wake up in the morning and you're just as exhausted as when you went to bed that night before. Maybe you felt like you were just not yourself. You, you were just off. That nothing seemed right. For some business as usual, it was boredom overcame creativity. 
There's no enthusiasm. There's no wonder. There's no imagination. Just business as usual. And sometimes we look at life and the world and it all seems in vain, right? We're busy, but we're not getting anywhere. There's no depth. There's no meaning. Only business as usual. And it can happen in any, anywhere, any location, with our friendships, with our marriages, with our parenting, with our work, with our school, with our church. But the things I'm describing, however, are not actually the problem. They are the symptom in the same way that the animals and the money changers in the temple, that wasn't the problem. They are the symptoms of something deeper that was going on. And the problem is not so much in the temple as it was in the human heart. And sometimes it's about our fear. We're fearful about what's happening in our life or the uncertainty of the future. And we want some type of security, right? Don't we? We want some sort of predictability so that we can keep doing the same old things. That we can keep doing business as usual because that is predictable and steady. But it creates only an illusion of security. And today, how many of us are longing for business as usual? Maybe we've taken people and relationship and even things for granted. Maybe we've lost our sense of gratitude, our sense of wonder, our, our sense of mystery. And I'm not saying that as a criticism or a judgment of me or you or anybody else. I'm just naming what often happens to us. You know, what has business as usual look like in your life And now, where are you at today? There are thousands of reasons and ways in which we fall into business as usual. There's there's one thing that, that I keep coming back to, and that's actually forgetfulness. See, business as usual is born out of this thing called forgetfulness. We forget that that we really are the temple of God's presence as believers. We forget that all of creation is the residence of God. We forget that in whatever direction we might turn, there is the face of God gazing upon us. And as soon as we forget those things about ourselves, about each other, or the world, life becomes business as usual. And may I suggest that sometimes God uses turmoil to get our attention. I think that's what happened in the temple. They didn't see themselves or one another as the true temple of God. It was about business as usual, literally, for them. They had forgotten that God was actually more interested in them than in their festivals and festivities. And I think as Christians, when we forget that we are the temple of God, life can easily become a series of simple transactions. Relationships and intimacy are lost. Priorities get rearranged. Making a living replaces living a life. Life becomes a marketplace rather than a place for meeting, really meeting the holy, the holy in ourselves and in one another. Business as usual. And I think that's what Jesus is overturning and driving out of the temple. So in John, this happens at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Throughout the rest 
of the gospel, Jesus will be interrupting this business as usual. Jesus shows up and turmoil happens. We can remember the Samaritan woman at the well at John chapter 4. She had five husbands. She's living with a man who's not her husband. Jesus shows up, throws everything, everything in turmoil, has a conversation with her. Her first, second, third, fourth husband died, divorced, ran off. Who knows? We're not sure. What we do know is that it was improper and dangerous for this woman to be without a man in that culture. You know, business as usual meant that she had to belong to somebody. And Jesus meets this woman at the well, interrupts her life. And it's not about the men in her life. It's about her. How about the guy in John chapter 5 who spent 38 years paralyzed on a mat trying to get into the pool of water that would heal him, but somebody always beat him to it. The same ground, the same mat, the same failed effort for years upon years. For this guy, 38 years of business as usual, Jesus shows up, causes a stir, tells the guy to stand up and take your mat and walk. And what does he do? He does. Again, business as usual was interrupted. Let's not forget the 5,000 people that had to show up on empty stomachs in John chapter 6. Philip is, is, is sure there's not enough food. There's no way to feed these guys. Empty, hungry people, right? Business as usual, typical. But Jesus has other plans. Two fish, five loaves are more than enough. Scriptures say that everybody was satisfied. Twelve baskets were filled with leftovers. John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. Lazarus is already dead for three days. Martha knows because it says that there was already a stench coming out of the tomb. Again, Jesus tells her it's not going to be business as usual. Take, take away the stone, he says. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. Over and over, Jesus is causing turmoil, he's interrupting, he's disrupting, he's overturning, he's throwing out this concept of business as usual because business as usual is destructive to our lives and our relationships. It destroys our ability to see and participate in the holy that's already present and among us. Maybe for you today it's not about other people. Maybe you can relate to the woman at the well. Maybe you know what it's like to be grounded and paralyzed. Or maybe you are empty and hungry today. Maybe you need to be called back to life. Maybe this business as usual that has interrupted all of our lives is God just trying to get our attention. And so what's God saying to you during this time? Because regardless of who we are and what we've done or left undone or how we see or judge life, we are the temple of God and there's one who stands in the temple of our life who is trying to interrupt business as usual. What does the temple of your life need today? What tables in your life sort of need to be overturned? What animals need to be driven out? Children not included in that one. And I'm not asking about what needs to happen so that you can become holy or become the temple, but so that you can see that you're already the temple. Jesus doesn't make us into something we're not. 
He calls, a back, he calls us back to who we've always been. In John's account of Palm Sunday, after Jesus enters Jerusalem, he has a teaching moment. It's actually what some actually call the secret to life. Now there were some Greeks amongst those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. Now again, we don't know why they wanted to see Jesus. I have a few guesses. He turned water into wine. He cleansed the temple. He healed the son of the royal official. He healed the paralytic. He fed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. He walked on water. He gave sight to a man born blind. He raised Lazarus from dead. I would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. That's his response to those who want to see him. That's his response to the Greeks, to you and to me. And again, look what stands out in this passage. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains a single grain. It, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. There you have it. To many, they, they call this the secret to life. It's this pattern of loss and renewal that runs throughout our lives, actually, and runs throughout the world. And even if you've never even thought about this as a secret to life, you've lived and you've experienced it, sometimes by choice and other times by chance. You, you think about it, we all die a thousand deaths throughout our lifetime, right? Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship. Maybe it's the loss of your health or opportunities. Maybe it's a dream, loss of a dream. All deaths you know, we didn't want or we didn't ask for when you look at it this way. Other time, we actually choose our losses, right? We choose our death, so to speak. We give up parts of ourselves for another. We change our beliefs, we change our values so that we can be more authentically ourselves. Sometimes there are things that we need uh, to let go of, things that we cling to that deny us the fullness of life. And we that, that God offers us. Maybe it's fear, anger, resentment, regret, disappointment, guilt, the need to be right, approval. Either way, it's there. And you look at the way this pattern is, is present in our life. Have you ever fallen in love and, and committed your life to another? If so, you had to let parts of your old life go and something of your single life had to die so that you could be with this other person. What about parenting? You know, if you're a parent, you know that there are sacrifices of yourself and your life that have to be made in order for the new life of your child to emerge and grow. We give up parts of ourselves for another. Parents are continually letting go of their ch children so that he or she can grow up. You have to let go. Have you ever been the caretaker of another person? If so, you can actually name the parts of your life that had to die so that another might live with dignity, compassion, and love. 
You gave of yourself. So what are the costs? What are the losses? You paid for an education or a career, right? You chose at that time for certain losses. You chose to let go of some things so that other things could arise. For every choice we make, for every yes we say, there's at least one no and probably actually many. And the same is that, that, that same patterns in nature. You can see it in the changing of the seasons from the falling leaves to the new blooms, which are just trying to get out now, even underneath all this snow. But we see it in the setting and then in the rising of the sun. You think about the scriptural stories of about loss and renewal. Abram, he left his country, his kindred, that he might be made into a, a great nation. He's renamed Abraham and a blessing to all the families of the earth. Jacob loses his old identity and is wounded so he can become a new man, Israel, with a new life. James and John, they left their father in their boats and nets to become disciples of Jesus and fisher, uh, fishers of people. Jesus tells his disciples, he teaches them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands. They will kill him, and three days after being killed, what? He will rise again. The secret's out. It's everywhere. It's a pattern of loss and renewal, dying and rising, letting go and getting back, leaving and return. What in your life today do you need to let go of? What do you need to leave behind? What needs to die so that something new can rise up? You know, following Jesus isn't a spectator sport. We follow. We follow a truth. We try to live a truth that is to be embodied. A life to be lived. It's being a grain of wheat that falls into the ground. It dies. Why? So that we can now bear Fruit, that's where we see him. It's the letting go, it's the emptying, it's the leaving behind, it's the dying that makes new space for new life. If we were to have a conversation face to face, I'm pretty sure that most of us have one time in our life when you look back on it and something has happened, you'd obviously say, I never want to go through that again, but I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. What was a time like that for you? What happened? As difficult or painful as that experience was, it, may I suggest that possibly it bore a lot of fruit? Maybe you were changed, your life was renewed. It was one of those times where you were the grain of wheat that fell into the earth and died. For many of us, I bet it was probably one of those times where you knew you had seen Jesus in some way, shape, or form. That you probably experienced the holy. Maybe you were absolutely convinced that God was present and working in your life in that most difficult time. I've had those times. I think as I was writing this, the kind of losses, the greatest loss in my life has probably been the death of our son Josiah. God knows I learned a lot about myself as a result of that. My life has been reshaped, I think, and reformed in some very good and positive ways because of that. And I need to remind you that letting go does not mean choosing absence over presence. 
Instead, letting go is what allows us to be more authentically present with ourselves and with one another. It makes room for new life and new ways of being present and uh, alive. Letting go gives God something to work with. Because why would we want to continue to cling and to live in an isolated, business-as-usual, self-enclosed, single grain of wheat? So what's that grain of wheat in your life today that needs to fall into the earth and die? What are those things that if you lost them, you're, you're sure you'd just die? Maybe those are the very places waiting to bear much fruit in your life. You ever thought that maybe that's where you'll experience Jesus in a life-transforming way? We also know when Jesus gives a story about the seed, you don't go plant a seed and go back 10 minutes later to see the fruit. No, it takes time. And it usually takes a whole lot longer time than we want to give it. Growth can be slow. Growth is actually slow, and the fruit of new life takes time. Like I said, it's longer than we want it to, and yet, even when unseen, unbelieved, unrecognized, the power and life of God are present and at work in the depths of our lives. (coughs) That's the mystery of life. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let me go back to the book of Mark. The only gospel that says Jesus entered the temple, looked around, and left. So why did he leave? Why did he go back to Bethany? The gospel tells us in Mark 11.11, It was already late. That's what it says. You can't argue with that. So it got me wondering, you know, what if this is about something more than just the time of day? What if Jesus is late getting somewhere or doing something? And and the next question that comes to mind, what is Jesus late for? Is Jesus late getting the, the colt, the donkey, back to his owner? And I say that because it's another unique aspect of Mark's account of this triumphal entry. Mark is also the only one that says that Jesus promised to return the donkey to its owner. They all agreed that it it was either borrowed from its owner in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, um, uh, or found, like in John 12, but only Mark speaks about Jesus returning it back, which is interesting. Jesus sends two disciples. They borrow the donkey. They told him if anybody asks where they're doing, they say the Lord's needed and we'll, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back shortly. And that's what they did. So what if that's why Jesus left the temple? <laughs> Maybe he left so he could keep his promise, right? And follow through on what he said he would do. Maybe this is about Jesus being true to himself and keeping his word. What if this is about Jesus just sort of staying centered within, within himself despite what this week holds for him? What if returning this, this colt, this donkey, is a metaphor for us as we enter and begin to walk into Holy Week? 
What might returning this donkey mean for us throughout this next week as we approach Easter? What do you need to return this week? Think about that. What do you need to release or let go of? And again, we're all carrying stuff, right? For some of us, we've been carrying stuff far too long. And it's, it's no longer able to take us anywhere. It doesn't give us life. It's just baggage that we carry that continues to weigh us down. It impoverishes our life. It corrupts our heart. What is it that we need to let go? Is it a grudge? Is it resentment? Is it anger? Is it fear? Is it disappointment? Is it regret? Is it guilt? Is it envy? Maybe you need to return trying to be in control of everything, always having to be right. Your need for approval or perfectionism. I don't know what it is for you, but I'm convinced that we all have our stuff. And maybe this week as Jesus shows up and he begins to cause some turmoil, this is the time to return and release it to God. Trusting that God can do something with this stuff that we were never able to. And what if returning and releasing this stuff is also about returning to ourselves? Reclaiming our truest self, who we were created to be. Who God made you to be. That means we can then move forward. Not from the same old place, but literally from a new start. That's what Jesus did. He stayed true to himself through the week, and and so must we. So maybe returning the cult is ultimately about returning to our original self, the self of beauty and, and goodness that God created us in and loved us from the beginning. He loves us. Returning to reclaiming those parts of our lives that have been lost, that have been ignored, that have been forgotten, or maybe even denied. Even as we carry around that stuff that needs to be returned, there are also parts of ourselves in our life in which we need to return. What do you need to return to? Do you need joy? Do you need hope? Especially at this time. Beauty, truth, honesty, peace, mercy, forgiveness. What if we just reclaim the dignity and the holiness of each human life? What if we return to love of our neighbor and ourself and our enemy? Coming back to ourselves. Could actually be like a new life, right? And so we begin this week by returning. What do you need to return? What do you need to return to? Those are two separate questions. And I think the answer is that we have to look around at absolutely everything. And especially now when we find ourselves in isolation when we find ourselves in this forced slowdown, actually in almost what we could consider a Sabbath. And I think that's what Jesus did. 
You know, it's not so much just looking around at everything outside of us, but looking around at everything within us. Look at what's there. What's missing? What do we need? What do you feel? Who are you truly? And who do you want to be? Take that image with you this week from Mark of returning the colt. Take it with you wherever you go. You know, uh, as you pray this week, as you take time, let it be present in your life. And, and as you engage in people this week, in your, your relationships, in your family, be it online or at home, for some of you at work or maybe even at the grocery store, you know, returning to God, returning uh, ourselves is the promise of how this week will end. Look around at everything and then go and return the cold. Let's get back to what God has called us to be. We all have to admit that being self-centered and selfish is part of the sinful human nature. It's part of us. And it's easy for us to turn into ourselves and to turn us from each other and from the truth of the matter. But the truth of the matter is that life is not about me. My life is actually about Jesus Christ. Your life is not just about you. It's about the one who died for you. It's about what he will do in your life, for your life, and through life. Now, we're often the main characters in in the life God has given us, but let's face it. What is your life? What is my life? Think about that. God's got our attention now. He's got the whole world's attention. And so I throw this out. If you need spiritual help, if you need to talk to somebody, you simply call or text us at the number that's provided on the screen. We are actually here for you. Even if you don't come to our church, we want to be here for you. If you need to talk with me personally, I think I'm available. All you need to do is call or text the number that's on the screen. Ask to set up a conversation with me, and I will set up a Zoom call with you or however it may be that is most convenient. It's the beginning of Holy Week, people. It's going to be a time of reflection. Like I said, it's ups and downs, and we are all going through that right now. Tuesday, or sorry, Wednesday at 7.07, tune in on Facebook and Instagram. We'll do a live teaching and prayer. We want you to tune in on Bad Friday, Friday morning, 10, 10. We are doing our Bad Friday gathering. And then, of course, next Sunday at 9.09, Easter Sunday. Today, at 11 o'clock, we're hosting Step 2, our growth track. If you want to jump in, you can do that. It's, uh, everything's online. If you want to do Step 1, you can do that too. That won't be until 1 o'clock. Just go to the website and join us. It's Holy Week, people. What do you need to let go? What do you need to return? Jesus shows up and he causes turmoil. What's going on? What do we need to die to to see fruit in the end? Let's pray. God, I give you thanks for your good. Your mercy is endless. We stand here at the start of Holy Week and this week in which your church remembers Jesus' passion and death. And I have to admit, I'm distracted by many things. So turn my eyes now to the one who comes in your name. The one who opens the gates of righteousness. The one who answers when we call. 
I bless you, Lord, for shining your light on me, for sending your Son to us in human frailty, to walk literally the road we walk, and open my eyes, God, that I may see him coming, and may praise him with a pure heart, and may walk in the way of his suffering, but also, God, to share in his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, I pray. Amen. So, in ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for the blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. Let's do this at home. So this week, people, so sanctuary and all who are viewing, may God walk with you. May his grace flow over you. May he give you strength to be victorious. And when you feel alone, may he illuminate your eyes to see that he is walking with you in this dark valley. May he be your life preserver when the water is above your head. And may he be your cooling water when you walk through this fire. Now go and live the church where you are. Be blessed. Tune in. We'll see you this week.